0: Hello, everybody. This is Ravi Gupta, the co-host of The Lost Debate Show, and if you're listening to this, this is a special episode uh, that is going to be cross-promoted with a show that we have at the branch called Sweat the Technique. And Sweat the Technique is all about how do you get better faster, and it's hosted by me and a bunch of veteran educators. And in this episode, I interview a good friend of mine who started a super successful business, and he's done it alongside a competitor in WeWork that you'll know really well. And so I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. It gets to the sort of practice of running a business and what does it mean to be a strong leader, which is really sweat the technique territory. So you can go over there to listen to more of that type of content, but also involves issues of policy, economics, and current events, which is why it's also here on the Lost Debate feed. So enjoy this episode. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Jamie, explain the beginning of this whole story, right? So you were running a nonprofit organization called Kepler, which in its own right was doing amazing things. And I'm sure you learned a lot from that experience. Uh, But you, on the side, were starting to dabble in the world of this sort of budding co-working industry. So take us back to to that
1: place in time. Can I describe the current moment for 30 seconds before taking us all the way back? Yeah. This is a very interesting time to be having this conversation because it is on the eve of WeWork, our largest company. There's basically three global companies in the space. Us, WeWork, and a company called IWG. WeWork is of course the most iconic, and they're about to go bankrupt. So it's an interesting time to think back to the trajectory of this business, the tra- trajectory of their business. Where did things diverge? How do we get to this moment? But we were just having breakfast this morning, and you were saying, I really like how Rafa Nadal, after each tennis match, always spends a lot of time complimenting, his competitor, even when they, he beat them. So I definitely want to avoid, you know, oh, I shouldn't power have said that. Dunking on WeWork. But okay, so to go back to the beginning, I was running a, a non-profit, an education organization, and our largest funder was IKEA. The president of IKEA was in the U.S., and our U.S. offices were in a shared workplace. So I go to prepare for the meeting with him. And this was probably the most important meeting of my life because we were trying to get them to do a $15 million grant. The conference room table was sticky. There's light bulbs out. There's like, this is 2011, so there's someone scooting by on a hoverboard and it was just (laughs) like so unprofessional. So I actually ended up holding the meeting in a Le Pen Quotidien, that like kind of fancy coffee shop chain. And that night I was livid because I was just like, why am I paying for a workplace? I like some of the sharing economy dynamics, But why am I paying for a workplace that I'm so not proud of that when I have the most important meeting of my life, I'm actually going to hold it in a coffee shop nearby. And if I feel that way, there must be 50,000 companies that feel that way. So that is a classic entrepreneur story in the sense that I believed I would be customer number one for a more elevated, more premium, flexible workplace that you could be proud of and then thought a little bit about my own thoughts and my own orientation just to make sure I wasn't some weird edge case, came to the conclusion, if I feel this way, there's probably a ton of other companies that feel this way, so let me launch it. And I think that's the best way to launch a business. And you started with a, a location in Chicago, correct? Yeah, our first location, we, me and my co-founder, who was my best friend since I was a little kid, he was my next-door neighbor growing up, and he's he's an only child, and I had a lot of siblings, so he was always over at our house. So he was almost more like a sibling, We launched it together, but because we were based in New York, New York is a famously unforgiving market. We did the first one in Chicago just so we would have a little more breathing room if the thing didn't come hot out of the gates. And you were doing
0: that on the side for a while. How long did it take for you to go full-time into running the company?
1: For one year, I ran both organizations at the same time, and it was really exhilarating. It was fun in a lot of ways, and then it became completely unsustainable. I don't think someone can run two true growth businesses maybe elon musk notwithstanding at the same time especially if one is in rwanda and one is in right. is it in the us
0: in stopping there for a second like you must have given some thought to this sort of side hustle theory of starting a business like what, what's true about it what's wrong about it or is it you know is the true answer what everybody's expecting which is totally context specific
1: I think there are context specific elements. I think there are businesses that require every ounce of your creativity, of your time, of your effort, and anything less than that, you're dooming yourself to failure. But that's pretty rare. Like a lot of businesses, the early stuff, you can start moving forward with it while you're doing something else. And in fact, that gives you, you're able to do it at the pace that's appropriate for the business. A lot of times you leave your job, and you're like, I'm all in on this thing, baby, but you're a year and a half from being able to launch a product, you accelerate getting the product into the market because you need some income or you gotta be able to raise money, and all of a sudden you're letting the need for your own essentially income thwart what might be the proper trajectory for that business.
0: You also give off signals to the people around you, right? Like there's a desperation that could sometimes come across. I often say this to people, who are looking for jobs, right? Which is really start, at least in your head, the search earlier than you think because you'd rather kind of start setting things into motion while you're in a secure place than when you
1: really need it, you know? Yeah, I think that's definitely true for jobs. It's true in a lot of things in life. I think one of the unique things about starting a company is too many people take VC money too early. And one of the reasons is there are very few businesses that throw off A livable income day one, and therefore getting a big $10 million check is necessary in order to make the whole thing happen. But in turn, you've now tied yourself to a very particular way of running a business, which for most businesses pretty much guarantees it will go out of business one day. So, one of the great advantages of starting something where it is not your only source of income is you are not trapped into having to take seed funding or VC funding too early. And that's what we did with Industrious, for example. We did not take VC money too early. And 10 years later, I still feel like I'm reaping the rewards of that decision.
0: And so you start, you know, you you go in full time after a few years. And at that point, the big kid on the block is WeWork, correct? And they are aggressive. They're the defining, they're like the Uber of the space. Like people use the word synonymously with co-working. And... You know, enter Adam
1: Newman. And when did you first meet him? And what kind of relationship did you have with him early on? They were the sort of more recognizable company growing in the space. I don't think I'm like totally milk toast, but I'm probably definitely less dramatic and maybe maybe less compelling than Adam. Nobody would describe you as milk toast. I <laughs> just think that he's
0: he's a, such an extreme personality yeah. that everybody anybody yeah. will look dull compared to him. You know. Although, I don't, I don't think the TV show, we'll get to that. I don't think the TV show did justice to you as a person, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, yeah.
1: Okay. So the, <laughs> the first time I met him, we were competitors and we said we should we should meet up and just talk about business and see if there's problems plaguing the industry or things like that. And at the time, I believe there was one problem and one problem only plaguing the industry, which is that I think the business model that we work and others were pursuing was a bad business model. But he wasn't particularly interested in talking about that. Explain that, though, for a second. What was the problem with the business model? So there are certain industries where there is an enormous amount of demand, and yet it somehow seems like everyone manages to lose money or go bankrupt despite that. So airlines, they're airplanes. Like, if you want to go to Europe, you're not taking a steamer ship there. There is no other way to get there than airplanes. There's obviously an enormous amount of demand for airplanes, and yet they're always going bankrupt. There's all those famous sayings about, you know, how do you become a millionaire owning an airline? You start as a billionaire and, you know, (laughs) watch an airline or something. And there's, you know, cold shipping. There's a lot of things like that.
0: Childcare might be that. We were talking about this this morning. I'm not sure if they go bankrupt, but it seems like there's a lot of problems, even though the demand is high. Nursing homes, sometimes people talk about like that, too.
1: And this would be one of those where there's a lot of demand for flex workplace, but historically... People have had a lot of challenge either making money or making money consistently. And the reason is what WeWork and all their competitors do is they sign a long-term lease with a landlord. So a 10, 15-year obligation, and they sign month-to-month or year-to-year deals with their customers. So there's an enormous mismatch in the duration of the liabilities for the business and the assets or the incoming revenue. And that creates a very shaky, very narrow path to profitability where you can get into a lot of trouble very quickly if you're not, you know, you're not very careful. And this is exactly what the hotel industry was like in the 60s and 70s. And that's one of just not to digress, but I think when you're launching a business or an organization, you want to learn from other people's mistakes. There's not that much in life that is sui generis, where you're like, "Mm, I'm the first person to ever do this. So I have no choice but to mind my heart and just reason from first principles you want to reason from first principles most of the time, but I mean, sometimes, but you also want to be working backwards from how have others done this. And the hotel industry had this exact problem. So for many years, hotels were run on leases. You would go lease a building, run a hotel, and if your occupancy of the hotel was below 60%, you'd be in the red, you lose the hotel, you'd go bankrupt and you'd start over. And eventually the hotel industry moved to management contracts where the owner of the building approaches Marriott and says, I want to turn my building into a Westin And Marriott says, sure, I'll do it for 5% of revenue, a nice little bonus if I can get to a certain performance level. And now, every hotel in the world is run on that model. So to me, it felt very clear from early on that this was a very similar business to hotels, and it seemed insane to think that this was gonna end up anywhere other than in the same business model as the hotel industry. But at the time, no one really agreed So I felt a little bit on an island with that perspective.
0: And so Adam Newman is, you know, sort of scooping up. Like in that case, they were not only signing long-term leases, weren't they purchasing certain buildings? Like, so they were going all in, in certain cases.
1: A little bit of that. I think what has turned out is actually Adam was buying some buildings and then signing leases with the buildings. He personally owned the building. The company signed leases with it. So that was, you know, a very complicated, very edgy sort of business transaction. But yeah, they were taking on a ton of liabilities. And I don't know if this is the right focus of this podcast, but some of that is about Adam Newman and and WeWork. And some of that is one of the best windows into that moment in time in VC backed businesses. What was being rewarded? What was
0: it? Yeah, let's go there. At that point, and give us a good year for this. Like what's the year where
1: 2015, 2016, 2017, the the Ultra low interest rate, money's flowing very freely era. What happened is, and there's some famous moments within WeWork that illustrate this. But essentially, what happened is, you had funders who were rewarding businesses on revenue growth, so they didn't care if you made money or not. They said, "I want to know what you're what, how much money you're bringing in." Eventually, you'll find a way to be profitable, and that's because there were companies like Amazon or Facebook that had proven. You know, had built extraordinarily successful businesses on that premise. But people learned that, overlearned that lesson and applied it to everything. So if you think about a company like WeWork, let's say you had to decide between a hotel-style management contract, like I described, or signing a very risky lease. And the difference is, in the hotel-style management contract, you might make $500,000 in profit on $800,000 in revenue, and in the lease, you might make less profit. You might make $300,000 in profit, but on $3 million of revenue, because you get to keep every penny of revenue for yourself versus in the management contract, the landlord is keeping a lot of that. That produced some very weird optical thing. And a lot of businesses fell into the same trap where you would say, look, I know I would make more money doing this other thing and it would be less risky, but I can bring in more revenue basically doing this on the lease-based thing. And by the time people find out I'm not making money, I'm going to be a $50 billion company and I can sort it out then. And that's part of how you also saw examples of companies, you know, some of the stuff that Uber did where they lost money on every ride or things like that.
0: Yeah, and in some cases, at least in this, the case of Uber, though, there there actually was a strategic reason why they'd want to do that because they weren't owning the car. They didn't ha- they didn't own the cars. They didn't have leases on the cars. So they, they actually were de-risked in a way that, like because they can they can quarter to quarter lose money in a more temporary way and then all of a sudden turn up the spigot and increase prices, which is precisely what they wound up doing. Whereas we work, those are leases that they're obligated to. <laughs> like
1: yes. you know, like you know what I'm saying? Like Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's two things. Number one, if you're gonna choose to lose money, you better have a damn good strategy behind it. And I think something like, I'm gonna get the world addicted to my product and gain market share and squeeze out competitors, and then I can turn up pricing or something. That's a strategy. You might be right, you might be wrong, but that is a business strategy. I think I'm going to get a nice valuation if I can show nice revenue growth, and there is no thesis for how that revenue growth would ever be profitable. To your point, I'm actually gonna sign up a 15-year obligation that's underwater. That I don't think is a strategy. Then you're really in the realm of optics, you're in the realm of perception, you're in the realm of what is someone willing to pay me for something that's not necessarily valuable in a business point of view. And I think most times in life, where instead of moving forward from what do I think is the right thing to do, you're moving backward from what does someone else think they'd be willing to reward me for, you're probably on the wrong path.
0: Well, yeah, let's go to 2017 then, because that's a good year, because that's when we were all living together in a two-bedroom apartment, (laughs) four of us and (laughs) a dog uh, (laughs) in Cobble Hill. And Set the scene for us. What what is industrious like at this point? And what is we were and I was actually renting. it's <laughs> funny, terrible. I was renting and we work at that time, I think. Uh which is, you know,
1: just it's a, a testament lot, to our friendship. A lot, lot of baggage here. <laughs> lot we're of baggage still here. friends after you did that. So I think we probably had 30 locations at that time. They probably had two hundred. We were the premium product, they were the more mass product. They were growing very quickly. They were starting to get very outsized valuations. And there was a lot of press and investor interest in Adam and the charisma and the the sort of almost maybe cult of Adam. And I think leading up to the first time I met him, there was probably some anxiety on my part. Cause I'm like, I feel like I'm making the right moves here. I feel like I'm making really sound decisions. I feel like a lot of what he's doing makes no sense to me. And yet all I keep hearing about is how brilliant he's being. And, you know, and so there were a lot of moments where I'm like should I just trust my gut that this guy is building a house of cards or is there a chance that like I'm playing checkers and he's playing chess and he's just seeing angles I'm not seeing and he's looking three corners ahead and I'm only looking around the next corner. And I think now looking back, like it was definitely the first, but it's hard to know that when you're in it. And so we kind of get together for this meeting and this is the moment where i all the anxiety went away, and I was like, "Oh, he, he, this is not. I'm playing checkers, and he's playing chess. This is he's on another planet." And it was that I, we had just bought a company, and I was saying, "Oh, we just we just bought this company, and I'm feeling okay about it." But you know, here's some of the, it's not a slam dunk. And he's like, "Oh, you're doing M&A. We're doing a little m of our own." And he pulls up his cell phone, and he's like, "Do you know Wavecrest or WaveSoft or something?" And I was like, shit, I don't know what this company is. It must be some, I'm like, oh, what, what What are they? And he's like, oh, they're making waves. And so I'm like, okay, it must be some construction technology company that's like, you know, really doing new interesting things. He's like, <laughs> I'll show you the video. So he pulls up YouTube and he starts showing me this video on his phone. And it starts with like kind of surfer music and someone riding a wave And I'm like, wow, okay, they're, they're really kind of playing up this making waves concept. And then they just keep showing people surfing. And there was a moment where I'm like, oh, my God, he bought a wave pool company and that was when I was like, okay, this, this company. Like, and this he company.
0: didn't, it wasn't right. He didn't buy a wave pool company as Adam, we Newman, were, which would be totally fine. Yes. We, we, we we were invested in a, in a
1: wave pool company.
0: And at the same time, so, so, so basically he's totally unfocused. This is a big difference between you two. There's, there's fundamentals to the industry that you understood that he didn't understand uh, and a sort of downside risk protection that you understood that he didn't. But I, another big lesson is, you were focused on the the bottom line product that you were providing, whereas he was doing a wave pool company he started. Uh, we Grow, which is a yeah. uh, a, a childcare company, which it made sense at some point, but not given the sort of cracks in his foundation. He he was doing the gyms within his facilities. They did the uh, we live concept, like where they were doing co living and. Basically, all of those things failed, from what I understand, and they were all actually independently sensible ideas. I think my sort of my read on it, and I'd be interested in yours, was that you know it wasn't necessarily that anyone the wave. It actually wave companies also do really well, but each one of these is a very hard to execute yeah. business on its own. And
1: this is a guy who's not necessarily known for his attention stamina. You know, that is true. Yeah, I I, I think some of this relates to that point about when you're rewarded for. If you're when you're working backwards from what do I think will get me a good valuation? Investors like green shoots. They like to see I got my core business and I have this little thing that's growing at 120 percent a year. So if you extrapolate forward that on its own will also be worth two billion. And so, again, you can get in some very weird places if you think, oh, someone would pay me for grow. Someone would be excited to know that I was in the living space versus is there a rational thing to do? and does it help bolster my core product? Because I think the stuff that really does matter is, to your point, you want to create an underlying product people love, and you do want to build a moat around that product. So if you're like, hey, there's two other small businesses I could you know, launch that mesh very well with what I do, and if I can pull them off, I'm unbeatable. I'm the only person that could offer this combination of things, and that combination is meaningful to the customer, I'm not anti-innovation, yeah. but that's not what he was doing. to explain. Like, if we if we're sitting here today in
0: 2023, and Adam Newman executed on a model where in every major city there's a childcare provider, there's an awesome gym, and there is a co-living place attached to a co-working place, and those were all popping up everywhere. They'd be almost unstoppable because you'd be able to go there and you can get anything done. Uh, and they could unbundle, they could bundle, and all this kind of stuff. But almost the way that these like. You probably know these people, like the people who do these sort of suburban and yeah. exurban like Whole Foods. Yada, yada. I mean, they're just, you can't beat the combination of things that they offer today, but he just never got there, obviously. Okay, so you meet him, and he talks about the waves and all that. And at this point, it's almost like he's, he you guys have this relationship that I, from what I understand, where he is kind of trying to bully you, like which seems to be his MO during this yeah. period
1: well, at in that meeting, I didn't know that element of his personality yet. He just seemed kooky and charming, but in a very, you know, kind of in a slightly odd way. The next time we met was when the bullying part came out and it really was one of those situations where it turned on a dime. We basically agreed to fly to Atlanta together because we were going to look at each other's properties because they were looking at buying us. So first, Slight bullying thing that I didn't quite realize was that at at the moment was I got an email from his assistant saying, Mr. Newman's excited to see you. The plane is leaving from East Hampton Airport or something. And I was like, you know, I live in Brooklyn. It's it's, that's very far. I'll fly to Atlanta myself and we'll meet in Atlanta. And there was just a one line email that was like, Mr. Newman insists. So I had to take an Uber, a three hour Uber at three in the morning to go make this 6 a.m. plane from this airport that's nowhere near New York City. We got on the plane. We had Bloody Marys at seven in the morning. And I was just like trying to hold it together. But we were having a good time. And it was very collegial. And I thought the tone of the day was gonna be fun. Just, we're pretty different, but let's just like, you know, let's enjoy the day together. And then maybe an hour in, he had everyone else on the plane move to the back of the plane. So it was just the two of us at the front of the plane. And he basically was like, I want you to understand, if we don't do this transaction, I'm going to destroy your soul. And I laughed because I'm like, who says destroy your soul in a professional context? (laughs) Then he explained, he's like, I'm not kidding. I have 100 people on speed dial. And if we don't do the transaction, I'm going to push a button basically. And they are going to call every one of your customers and offer them one year free. And you're probably going to lose a third of your customers. And then I'm going to call the rest and offer them two years free. You'll lose another third. And then I'm going to call the rest and offer them three years free until you don't have a single customer left and you lose the company that you spent the last five years building. And I was like, I obviously thought he was bluffing. And I said, I think you'd lose $400, $500 million trying to do that for, for almost no rational like business reason. And he had just taken money from SoftBank and was like, that's what you don't understand about me. When Masasan san from SoftBank invested, he said, I like you, Adam. You're crazy. The problem with you is you're not crazy enough. So you need to understand, I am crazy, and the money behind me wants me to act even crazier. So I will do this if you are not careful. And he was he wasn't bluffing. They actually did it to us It ended up not working the way they thought it would. So they kind of. Why didn't it actually? I've never talked to you about this. So, because like if they're offering free services, like why wouldn't somebody leave for free? So basically, what they did was in Atlanta and Dallas, they offered exclusively for industrious customers, I think they would get a year free if they came to WeWork. And they parked vans outside of our spaces and, you know, kind of offered people. It was wild. And I definitely did not sleep a lot that week. But I think in the end, like, you know, there's a lot of places in New York that have half price sushi. It doesn't mean that's where I'm eating necessarily. Like, there's always discounts and bargains in life. And for pretty big decisions, like where am I going to spend 10 hours a day, every day, five days a week? You know, you don't want to get overcharged, but you're not going to bop around chasing a deal. So some startup entrepreneurs that were really price-sensitive moved, but I think when all was said and done, we lost like 2% of our customers in Dallas and 3% in Atlanta. It was oh. it was very expensive for them and minimally impactful. I also think we're a better product. Like I I, yeah. I don't, you would have to be willing to take a big step down in quality in order to get that savings.
0: And so, so at this point, he takes a shot at you and basically misses. And at that point, I imagine your relationship is effectively like careful, I guess is a good way yeah. to put it. And then things start to fall apart for him. How how much more quickly Because that? You know, the 2017, 2018, he didn't last much longer than that. So you chart
1: the demise from there forward. So we never saw each other face to face again after that day because it was so dramatic and just it would have been very awkward. And I basically did a James Comey style memo when I got off the plane and I just wrote to our lawyers and I'm like, here's everything that just transpired because he said some things on the flight as a, You and I went to law school. we're, We're never really like, you know, we're not constitutional scholars, but I knew enough to be like, this feels a little off. So I just said, here's everything that just happened. Let's shelve this if we have to come back to it. Didn't really ever see him again. The business kept growing in stature and reputation. WeWork's business for probably nine more months. And then they started preparing for an IPO. And they were a private company, so no one knew their numbers. And in the lead up to the IPO, they had to go to the street and start sharing information about the business. And people were very taken aback by some of the numbers, some of the ways they were running the business. And it started to create a death spiral reputationally and for the success of the IPO for two reasons. One, and this always happens to leaders in any company, there are the actual numbers and performance and things your company are doing. And then there is, what does that say about the person making the decisions? So the company had some really ugly numbers. And then everyone's like, wait a minute who's behind this? Why are they making decisions that would lead to such ugly numbers? And then the stuff came out about him getting IP protection on the word we and charging his own company for that. So there was also, you know, sort of shades of gray on the ethical front. And that all added up to a failed IPO. They pulled the IPO. It was extremely painful for a lot of people. A lot of employees, you know, had bought houses in the expectation of the run up to the IPO, et cetera. And he was eventually exited from the business, but got a giant, you know, more than a billion dollar golden parachute from it. So he's probably the only person around that business that to this day has made much- Yeah, him and money Miguel,
0: his also. co-founder. Yeah. Uh, and so the IPO fails. What do you think happens to, to WeWork if they didn't IPO? Do you think they would have survived? I mean, obviously, as we speak today, they exist, but they're like in mortal danger. But I mean, survived in in a, in a way that would have made them a meaningful competitor to you long-term?
1: I still think they could be a meaningful competitor long-term coming out of bankruptcy, but I think that die was cast even that long ago that it was a company that would eventually go bankrupt. Like for example, one way to think of it is industrious, our liabilities are about 30% of our revenue, which is pretty good. It's a pretty risk-mitigated business, but a lot of companies in our sector, their liabilities are 40, 45%. WeWork's rent, and interest payments are 82 or actually last quarter they were 86% of their revenue. So you bring in money, 86% of that goes out the door day one just to pay your rent and interest payments and that's before you have to pay your employees. That's before any of the costs that actually are associated with running a business. So they had built a company because they were chasing that revenue growth and hoping to be valued on revenue not profit making with such an upside down cost structure that I don't think IPO no IPO more years private less years I don't I'm not really sure any anything they could have done at that point could have unwound the structural demise that was built into the structure of the business
0: and so he gets this golden parachute you know obviously we could do a whole episode about softbank and their complicity in this and just like how how many sort of moral lines were crossed i think in this whole process and how like the average employee some of whom i know were screwed But let's put that aside for a second, because I think there's like some interesting stuff to talk about post WeWork's demise in the space that you work in, right? So you go through the pandemic at this point, right? So like, right after WeWork goes down, you hit probably the most tumultuous period of time in your industry's history, basically, you know, on the heels of your your largest competitor struggling, which most people think is good, but you, you could talk about it. It's not a, it's it's, it's not a simple story because the the whole perception of the industry is shaped by the biggest player. And so you have to battle that. And then you have the pandemic where people aren't coming into the office. And then you have a new environment coming out of the pandemic, which I think is widely misunderstood. I think a lot of people think of office as one large category and they see commercial office, office space as generally one category that's struggling. But you've had some of the best years. You've had the best years you've ever had in recent years. Why is that the
1: case? So let me start with today and then describe the pandemic experience getting to today. You're right. Today is the best period performance-wise in the history of the company on any financial or operating metric you could look at. Industrious definitely outperforms our competitors. So that is probably more true for Industrious than it is for other players in the sector. But overall, the sector is experiencing a sort of golden moment. And that's because so many of the ways people want to work now, companies distributing employees across 40 cities, people wanting to go into work a couple days a week, people wanting to walk to work in Brooklyn instead of having to commute to Midtown Manhattan, most of those things are only you can only effectuate them as a business via some kind of network of spaces that you can buy on a subscription, and there are really only three global companies that offer a network of spaces you can buy in a subscription. So a lot of the changes that have really hurt the long-term leasing office world have benefited the flex office space, which is one of the ironies of the fact that WeWork's going bankrupt now is they're going bankrupt at the exact moment when the industry is is having record numbers. It's like BlackBerry going bankrupt at the exact moment that smartphones were taking off. So that that is the moment we're in, and I think I don't want to be naive, but I think that is going to continue for a very long time. Like in the end, it is irrational for companies to rent a space on 15-year leases, rip it to the studs, build it out from scratch. And in the end, McKinsey's offices look the same as Bain's offices, which look the same as BCG's offices. They should just outsource it, buy as a a product, just like they do with data storage or, you know, manufacturing or a lot of other things that at this point people buy on a subscription rather than sort of doing themselves. That was not preordained. Like The depths of the pandemic were for sure the worst time in the history of the company Because people were not coming in two days a week, which is good for us. People were coming in zero days a week, which is bad for us. People didn't know where the world was headed. People couldn't gather in space. So as you can imagine, 2020 was a bad year to be a workplace provider. And many of our competitors went bankrupt or had to do big recaps, which is essentially where you go to all your investors and have to kind of start over. And we didn't have to do that, luckily. We didn't have a good year, but because we did the management contracts I described, we were hurt much less than the rest of the industry, which is in that much riskier lease-based model. And so we made it, we came out the other end. And because we had that more risk mitigated model, and this is a lesson for any company, any nonprofit, really. I used to work at a hedge fund where the head of the fund used to say, like, the highest form of leverage is cash. I don't quite understand that expression, but the basic concept was like, you want dry powder to be able to, spend or use in crises and because our competitors were on their backs or we're going bankrupt and we actually were able to capitalize on the moment weworks revenue for example is 10 percent lower right now than it was in 2019 ours has tripled since 2019 so we were able to invest in growth add new locations and that has been very helpful because the world has changed And when I describe people working in 40 cities, that means we had to launch an industrious in Charleston, South Carolina, which we never would have done before the pandemic, or industrious in parts of Brooklyn or Greenwich, Connecticut that we never would have done necessarily before the pandemic. And so one of the great values, I think, of survivability is it means not just that you get to keep surviving, but also it means probably that you're more resilient and therefore in moments of a lot of tumult are able to lean into those moments instead of having to lean out of those moments.
0: Yeah, I think in a weird way, you guys might be able to hit the power laws that the SoftBanks wanted WeWork to hit, but in a very different way, right? Like, you know, capture the industry, become the sort of the dominant player, grow in a pretty robust way, but maybe not get there in the ways that they thought, like through this wild-eyed kind of haymaker style of Adam Newman. you know? It will take a lot longer.
1: I'm, I'm a true believer in 30 to 40% a year growth for organizations of a certain scale. You know, we're almost at 400 million in revenue right now, like it's not a small company. And so for a company like this, 30 to 40% is very fast. You're able to compound growth over time. You're able to add a lot of new products and a lot of new spaces, but you are not a different company every year. When you're doubling, tripling in size every year, everything falls apart. You have to start over every year and that makes it hard to deliver a great product to customers that makes it hard to do a lot of the things that engender support long-term sustainability so softbank might want a slightly higher growth rank, growth rate than i believe is prudent for a company like this but if we can keep growing at 30 to 40% a year for the next two decades i'm going to be a very happy guy
0: and so for you know the industry itself you know we sit here in 2023 when a few things have happened in the office sort of culture and business world that could be contributing factors. The obvious one is the pandemic and how it's reshaped life. Second one is the change in just interest rates and what that means downstream for a lot of businesses. Those are just two that come to mind. Like, Tell me what's going on here and, and what that means like for the next five to 10 years of how like people who are not even in the industry, but people are like, how are people where work- you have a, a unique window into how people come to work, how they work. What are you seeing right now? And what do you, what, what are the
1: sort of trends that you're following? Let me describe what's happening today in the workplace from the point of view of the person going to work every day, because a lot of articles are about what our landlord's doing and what do employers want. And when the rubber hits the road, it's. For me or you, when we wake up every day, do we want to work from home? Do we want to leave our front door and go somewhere? And if so, where do we want to go? And that has changed. And everything flows from that. So for the customer, I think the world has moved from feeling like high school to feeling like college. And what I mean by that is when you're in high school, you go to the same building five days a week, you sit in the same classrooms, you see the same people over and over again, and that's how you Collaborate. That's how you build institutional affiliation. Then you get to college and it's much more diffuse. Some days you skip class, you might study in your dorm room. Sometimes you go to the library. Sometimes you do go to class. You mostly see, you know, your little, let's say you work in this analogy, let's say you work for a very large company and there's only 40 of the employees live in Denver. That's like in college, I mostly saw the other anthropology majors. And then once in a while, you'd see the whole student body. You go to the football game and you see the whole student body. So companies will once in a while run retreats or have people once a month all gather, you know, at a hub space in New York. And that is more and more what it feels like. You're going to work from home a day or two a week. If a company is very munificent and does it right, you're going to have a local no-commute space to go to, and you're going to have a central hub space to go to. And you're going to basically get to choose your own adventure as you go through that. And that is going to feel a lot like college. And what I would say is most people I know feel more affiliation with their university than they do with high school. They have more memories. They feel they're more likely to donate to it. They feel more connected to it. So the evidence suggests that you can build a great culture and you can build a lot of affiliation and connection in that more diffuse model than in the I'm going to force you to go to classroom 21 five days a week from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. So I feel very confident that the end result of all this is going to be more freedom for people, less coercion from their employer, and no diminution in people's productivity or level of affiliation with their employer.
0: Yep. I mean, that makes sense. Is there a customer that you have that you think does this particularly well? Where you're like, oh yeah, like they have people all over the country, or at least they they've kind of figured it out. And maybe they even
1: transition from one model to the next. I'm trying to figure out who there's an NDA and who is it. Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't well, worry. I can anonymize one. Here's a customer I think is doing something really cool. One of the big Silicon Valley technology companies that's like very famous actually does not have a huge New York presence. It's only 200 people. And they really were showing a preference for working from home are working from the outer boroughs because it's a pretty hip company. So a lot of people live in Brooklyn, Ridgewood, et cetera. Staten Island. Yeah. Staten <laughs> So they have something that we worked out with them called HQ for a Day, and they rent a big HQ for us only on Mondays. They don't pay for it Tuesday through Friday. Someone else can use it Tuesday, Friday, but Monday, that's theirs, and everyone comes in on Monday. I think they'll eventually move it to Wednesday, but I think that's a really cool solution that was thoughtful of them and it works for the employees and they're obviously spending a lot less money than if they had this dedicated space I'm surprised that, that
0: works ends. for you like how do you have space for just
1: one day and then what happens the other days you rent it to someone else you know other days i mean i really i do think fractional businesses like airbnb or turo or anything else you know if there is a product that people only want to use a limited amount of time per week the rational thing to do is to fractionalize it and allow different people to use it other times of the week. Like if you just think about environmentally. Yeah. Heating and cooling and lighting spaces that are completely empty is really, it's, a, it, it's painful to watch. It's an environmental nightmare. And that is what's happening in a lot of the country. You don't want that. You want higher utilization. And if the way you achieve that is by, it's Google or Ebay's on Monday and it's JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs is on Wednesday, that's a better outcome for everyone.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Like, there, this fractionalization seems to be hitting a lot of industries. You and I passed by uh, a startup for food service businesses that kind of pulls together a bunch of businesses that otherwise wouldn't be able to pay for the space that we saw. And you could imagine that maybe some of those will continue doing it, some of them may not. But it's a much lower risk uh, for them. Uh, and you know, this has obviously been happening with apartments and everything. There was a startup that I've been getting ads for. That basically is like an apartment trading platform. I forget what it's called, but it's like where if I wanted to go to LA for a week, I can trade with somebody. You know, it's like you know it's surfing taking, in Costa
1: Rica for three whole months. Yeah, you know theoretically. Well,
0: okay, <laughs> uh, Jamie. You know, amazing. Uh, how can folks find you if they you know want to check out office space wherever they live? You are you're not just in the United States, by the way. It's worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, so you would go to IndustriousOffice.com you can email me, jamie at industriousoffice.com. And we are really everywhere in the US. I think we're in 50 something cities in the US. And then we're in Paris and London and Amsterdam. And in Asia, we're in Singapore and Australia and Thailand and Hong Kong. So that one fun thing is if you're going on a trip and you want to go, you really can only go for a long weekend, but the dream is like, hey, I wanna go to Paris for a whole week. You can work out of an industrious in Paris for those other days, and it enables you to be there longer, get a little deeper in the culture. So that would be a fun way to try the product in a more lighthearted, enjoyable way.
0: Well, Jamie, thanks for being with us. Uh, and good luck in this really exciting new phase not that I say this as if I'm not going to talk to you tomorrow (laughs) or actually this afternoon but um, thanks for jumping on the podcast I think at some point we should start like the all out podcast or something at a third person you know we could be like a (laughs) competitor to Chamath and all these guys you know a little little less aggro version of this listeners if you like that idea chime in send us a
1: note I love that